The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And we're finishing out the James Whale retrospective series with a roundtable. We've talked about 10 of his different movies. We've had a couple of authors talk about his life. And now we're going to be talking to some people about the impact that James Whale had on cinema at the time and the future and how it impacted them. And I'm joined by Frank DeLostrito, Joshua Kennedy, and Gregory Mank illustrious group and i'm going to let them introduce themselves i'll start with frank frank can you tell us about yourself okay i i uh write on i write on horror movies i write on mainly 1930s and 40s horror movies i've written six books and a lot of magazine articles i'll give talks to anybody who will listen to me and i've been doing that for uh i guess i guess i got out of it but i got back into it in the mid 90s so i guess i've been doing it on 25 years that's me. Awesome. Um, Joshua Kennedy, we'll go to you, Josh. I'm just a filmmaker from South Texas that loves these old films, much like the esteemed gentleman uh, joining us. And um, I just won the Rondo Award for Best Independent Film for House of the Gorgon, which I'm very proud of. And I'm just honored to be here. Okay. And Mr. Mank, Gregory Mank. Yes, uh, congratulations on the Rondo, by the way. Thank you, uh, thank you. I, yes, um, yes, I've been doing this since, oh gee, in the 1970s. Um, my first book was This Alive, the classic cinema saga of Frankenstein, came out in 1981, uh, and I've kept at it um, all, these, all these decades, and um, uh, just uh, love the research, love talking about the films, and, um, and having a real good time in doing all this. Excellent. And again, I want to thank all you gentlemen for joining me to do this roundtable to do to finish our deep dive into James Whale's work. And uh, we have a, a, some topic questions that I'll throw out, and you guys can go through and answer them in any way you see fit. And we'll start with you first, Craig. How did James Whale's movies change cinema at the time they came out? How do you think it impacted the moments that they came out in the 1930s? It's kind of a broad question, but I would when I compare James Whale's movies to those of his contemporaries, I'd say he was probably a pioneer in camera movement during the sound era. Uh, when the, when the sound came in, the, the, uh, see in the old days in silent films, you could talk, you could dance, they'd play music while they were filming. So it was, it was a much more collegial atmosphere. When sound came in, the, the cameras made noises. So they, at first they had to be locked in soundproof booths. And then they were made, cameras were made soundproof, but they were static. And if you watch James Whale's movies in, in chronological order, he's, he's getting into really good camera movement. Uh, he has some of it in Frankenstein. And the, I, I would say he reaches his peak in his masterpiece, Bride of Frankenstein. So in the broad, broad question, how did he change cinema? 
He was probably in the forefront with some other directors. He was not alone in that, in camera movement. I admire the editing of his movies compared to a lot of the other horror movies of the time. Uh, but uh, I don't know how much he gets credit for that or his editors. And uh, I'll pass it on to the next guy. That, that's, that was my impression for your question. All right, and we'll go to. I took, um, good, I took all the good topics, by the way. So I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> and we'll go to Mr. Mank next. Greg, what do you have? To, what do you want to add on to that? Well, um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the content of his movies, and that is the sense of the fact that before Frankenstein, all right, he's he's making films in which human beings are monsters, or at least perceive themselves as monsters. Um, for example, he did the film Journey's End, uh, which he had done in London on the stage uh, with Cullen Clive as Captain Stanhope. And Captain Stanhope is this young man who had been, you know, a, a, a very fine, upstanding young person who ends up in the army and is so, uh, in, in, during World War One, is so upset and, and, and so traumatized by the suffering and the horror that he sees that he drinks and becomes addicted to alcohol. And he sees himself for that problem, for that weakness, as being a monster. All right, I mean, he he, he just has complete repulsion for himself. But this is what he's turned into. That he's turned into this in, into the, this, this man who cannot, as he as he says, you know, face the horror of war every day without getting himself completely full of drink. Uh, and um, so you you have a a, a a very lovable, admirable young person here. Uh, who is seeing himself, even though the audience doesn't really see him that way, they, they sympathize with him, sees himself as, 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 as this horrible thing, all right? as this monster who can't quite handle war. And, and, and although he's doing a magnificent job of it, he's doing it with alcohol, and as a, as a, as a result, he despises himself. Uh, also, before Frankenstein, you have Waterloo Bridge with Mae Clark. Uh, Mae Clark is stranded in, in England. She becomes a prostitute, and in that film... She despises herself for being a prostitute, although it's it's made clear in the story that there are you know financial reasons uh, uh, that she has to uh, do that and has to uh, live that way. And and uh, nevertheless, she is uh, just just horrified by herself what she's become. And of course, at the end of the movie, uh, uh, commits suicide, walks into the path of a, of a falling bomb. So really, what he's doing in in, in these early films is he, he's taking a um, you know, a, a human being with deep flaws. And although we as the audience see the flaws, understand the flaws, understand how these flaws develop, why this person is having these nightmarish things happening to them, um, we can forgive them, but they can't forgive themselves. And um, uh, it, so, so there's a, a great tragedy in, in, in Israeli films and, and a heartbreak and a sorrow uh, and, and all that going on. And that's, of course, before he actually gets to monsters themselves, literal monsters, He's working with these figurative monsters um, uh, in, in in those films. Cool. That's an interesting take because I've seen those films as we've done the retrospectives. I know exactly what you're talking about, and listeners have an idea from listening earlier on in the episodes in the retrospective. Josh, uh -huh. what do you have to add? Well, I, I, I uh, Frank, you were talking about the editing, which I, I've always been incredibly aware of with, with whale films. And you said that you didn't know whether to, to give credit to the editor or to, to James Whale. I think we should, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, I wrote down Ted Kent, the editor, 
and looked up some quick IMDb research, and he did Invisible Man, Bride of Frankenstein, Showboat, and then he also did The Wolfman and Creature from the Black Lagoon. And so I, I just wanted to, to, to try and give more credit to James Whale. Than, I mean, because you can, you can definitely feel the James Whale influence editing-wise. In, I mean, you, Invisible Man is 10 times different than Creature from the Black Lagoon editing-wise. And just I, I think that that idea of, of giving him more credit for the editing. And like you said, the camera movements was just, it's electric. Watching his films is, I hate to say, I, I will not say a slap in the face, but it's just like, whoa, there's so much going on visually, camera-wise, editing. It's, it's I, that's what was, was going to be my, my thing, but Frank kind of took the, the wind out of my sails with his thing. But, <laughs> but that, that, that was uh, my opening statement. <clears throat> uh, let me just throw in, uh, some directors film a ton of footage, give it to the editor, and that's his job. Mm -hmm. Some editors, I mean, some directors know exactly what they want. Hitchcock is the prime example of that. And there's really no other way to edit it than the way they shot it. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know which is true of Whale. He was, mm -hmm. I think he was known for coming in on budget, which means he didn't just turn on the camera and just keep it running. So I, I'm quite willing to give James Whale all the credit for that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, the editing in his early horror movies is superior to, to some of the 1940s movies you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give him all the credit you want. <laughs> all right, cool. It's funny he could he could edit a comic take. Um, you know, if you, I mean, you watch, for example, Uno O'Connor. Uh, in Bride of Frankenstein, and, and, and she's almost like this human exclamation point running through the movie. All right, you look at her, and, you know, all of a sudden there's this one little snippet of film in which she suddenly turns her head and looks at the camera, and it's like, obviously, this is, you know, this is not a, a, a mistake. You know, this is this is what he wanted. He wanted this kind of, like, English music hall kind of, you know, whoops, uh, you know, take to, to, the, to the camera. And, um, uh, you know, he, he, yeah, he was a terrific editor, uh, uh, you know, working hand in glove with the editor, I think, uh, was uh, what he would do, yeah. 100%. And I have to, I have to, I have to throw in wit. There is more wit in his movies than most. Now, I mean, the, the, the wit in Frankenstein is, is I guess, Fritz. But after that, it, it expands. It's, it's kind of, if you watch it closely, it's kind of all over the place. So the horror is there. I mean, the horror is not mitigated. And, uh, but there is a lot of wit in there. And I, I think that reflects the intelligence of the man who made it. And the, yeah, and he's having such a good time, you know, watching it. Yeah. yeah. I was say, Greg, because you brought up about the um... – Journey's End and Waterloo Bridge, there's hints of humor starting in those movies leading into Frankenstein, which I know, you know. That was, that was Greg. That was Greg. I didn't bring those up. I thought I said Greg. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, Greg, I was thinking, you know, I noticed there was humor in those two also leading into it, which I was talking about, which Frank was bringing up a Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah. It was almost like, you know, he, 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 could, he could read a, uh, you know, with his stage experience, he could read where there was, was be a, 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 a take. Uh, some, or, a take might be a little bit too broad of a word um, that I'd used before, but uh, some kind of some kind of body language or facial expression or something that uh, an actor would use on the stage that would be a cue to the audience that, okay, it's all right to laugh here. All right. Even though in, in, in a, a, a story as grim as Journey's End or as grim as Waterloo Bridge, you know, there, it's, it's okay to laugh, and we're going to show you it's okay to laugh by the way the actor 
you know, kind of positions his head, pops his eyes, makes a face, um, cracks his voice, you know, all these kinds of things that, that, that he can throw in. Uh, that whale says, okay, now we've communicated to the audience. It's okay to laugh. You know, it's okay. This is, this is, a, this is a light moment. Go ahead and enjoy it because it's going to get really nasty a little bit later. You know, uh, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. And, and if, I may throw, if I may throw one more thing in there. When was the first brain that most movie audiences saw in the movie? was in Frankenstein. When the first case of body snatching in the, in the movies? It was probably Frankenstein. Though Laurel and Hardy were body snatchers in a 1929 short, but not really. So mm-hmm. I mean, he, I think Whale enjoyed pushing the envelope as much as he could. He did that in his personal life as, as well as in his professional life. But uh, when you, he was he was more daring and in a more tasteful way than a lot of a lot of directors of his time. And uh, you you brought up the, the, I mean the, the first time we see Grave Robbers, the first time we see a brain. It's the first time we uh, I mean uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. The first time we see the classic mad scientist laboratory in Frankenstein, which is not in the book. It's like the book doesn't do any anything with that. It's just like he he just stitches it together and comes to life. All the the, the the Kenneth Strickfat and, you know, zapping and the lightning and the, the kites that that's, I don't know if we, we credit whale with that, but that's the first time visually we, we see uh, the, what we consider the mad scientist laboratory in his film. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to tap into something Greg said. Incidentally, I, w- I was offline for about five minutes while Greg was speaking. So I don't know if he said this already. Apologies if he did. You know, Robert Flory was supposed to film Frankenstein, and later on he filmed he filmed Murders in the Rue Morgue and said that's my that's my Frankenstein. And the difference between what Flory was working on and what Whale was working on is that the monster becomes so human, the monster becomes the one you root for, which would not have been the case in a Flory movie. No one roots for the ape in, in Murders in the Rue Morgue. And uh, the original script for Frankenstein, they, the monster was a killer. And, uh, but, but when, when whale was done and again, how much credit does he get the screenwriter get? I'll, I'm willing to give whale all the credit I can. Uh, the monster became someone you could relate to. The monster became the one that the kids like to see. <laughs> yeah. And i you know, I just whale recognize that or whales team recognize that, but I'll give whale all. I know more detail. Now, one thing I want to follow up with all of you guys. I think you've been talking about it with the humor, his balance of tension in his movies? Because I know a lot of you have seen more than just his horror films. You've seen other films too, but how do you think about him keeping the tension levels balanced for audience members when they're watching it? I, I'll, I'll start. I, the uh, end of Bride of Frankenstein, I think is his greatest. I think that's his peak directorial. I mean, that, that's my, my personal opinion, but there's, it's, I want to say the last 15, 20 minutes. And there is the constant sound effect of, the heartbeat they they resuscitated the heart and it's just constant for the rest of the 20 minutes you guys know know what i'm talking about boom 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 and it's it's i didn't notice i mean the first few times you watch it you're just so into the movie you step back and you're like this is really just amping up it's almost like a clock almost like the hand of fate i mean whatever you want to do it it's constant and it's just driving that the whole last 20 minutes of that film and it's constant and and uh i mean that that's one thing you say tension that that just keeps me on the edge and then as soon as the, the sparks start going and we're raising the thing and <laughs> it's, it's just a masterpiece of tension and, and building that that 
suspense. Oh, this is good stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. Uh, and and it's, it's interesting to, to talk about that particular scene is that when, when that film was previewed in Hollywood and uh, they had the creation of the bride sequence and all that tension is building up more and more and more and more. And finally, you know, the table rises and, and, and the sparks and everything. Uh, the audience applauded. Yeah, they were like, it was like a release of tension. And it was was like, yeah, way to go, guys. You know, kind of thing, too. I mean, it was, they weren't, they weren't repulsed. They weren't like, oh, this is, I don't know about this. What's going to happen next? It was, it had been so beautifully mounted and so beautifully, you know, executed that they, uh, the audience actually burst into applause. It was great. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. Blasphemy. You know, I mean, it was, (laughs) yeah. It was. It was the. Uh, it was the, 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 the. Again, the way the way they handled the the, the whole the whole building up of that scene and and the tension and uh, and so that you had to have some kind of a release, some kind of audience release to it. Wow, cool! I never knew that. And and the score too helps completely. Oh, I know yeah. yeah, yeah, music is just great. And and Whale, probably going back to his stage roots, knew how to use actors. He got. You know, you can argue that he got the best performances out of a lot of actors he used. Mm-hmm. He, probably Boris Karloff. I would argue Claude Rains, though. That's a, there's a lot of competition for what his best performance is. Ernest Bessiger. Uh, he he knew how to he knew how to get what he wanted out of his performance. Sometimes sadistically. When I read read how he treated Karloff, I don't really admire the man, <laughs> but he knew how to get the performances he wanted. Excellent, and. Um... I'm not sure. I know. I know most most of you gentlemen are familiar with his horror works, but I'm trying to think about what one of his non horror works that came out, like Showboat, um, Journey's End, Waterloo Bridge. I know Greg, you talked a little bit about those first two. Anything you guys want to mention that in those works, The Great War, you know, those kind of things, or I mean, The Road Back. I'm sorry, The Road Back. As of as of today, because I just watched it for the first time this morning, The Road Back is my favorite James Whale non-horror movie. I was surprised how good it was. And you know, the story behind that is he filmed it. I haven't read the book, but he filmed it as the way he would do. And German council or whatever stepped. We don't want Germany portrayed that way. And they, they, and they edited the ending or something like that. I don't, I don't think a print of what Whale produced exists. But what is in there is good. And, uh, like, you know, his earlier movies creak with age a lot more than The Road Back does. I'm not, I'm not that detract from them, but I, you know, I, I may watch The Road Back again if I don't have to, but if I, I'd only watch the other ones if I really had to write an article on it. So The Road Back is a good film on the, and it rings true today. I mean, it has these war veterans in Germany coming home and not fitting in. It ends in the murder trial of one of them because he just couldn't take it. And, uh, you know, if, if, if what Whale filmed was stronger than what actually got to the screen, I wish we, we'd see it, but we never will. Yeah, and I love Green Hell. <laughs> I inherited that from my father. Green Hell came on. For those who don't know, Green Hell is widely considered as the worst movie by everybody that was involved. <laughs> and it came on television when I was a kid and my father got so excited because he had seen that when he was a kid in the movies that he just, uh, he, he just said, I could, can't tell you, he was just looking forward to it. And he looked forward to a lot of movies and he put it on and he just raised it the whole movie. So I have a, I've inherited that affection from my father. 
it's not a bad movie until Vincent Price dies. Price characters die. It kind of falls apart. So I can't explain it, but I have an, I have an affection for that I've inherited. <laughs> I'd like to hear other people's opinion on Green Hill. <laughs> this and Price said that Green Hell was five of the worst movies he ever made. <laughs> I'll put I'll put I'll rolled into one, <laughs> but it's it's fun. It's got beautiful sets, you know, and, and it's it's you know it you, you could do worse for an hour and a half, you know, than Green Hell. But it, it is. I mean, the figure the, the funny the funny story about Green Hell that I always enjoy is is the fact that apparently they, they tried it out in in San Francisco, I believe. And the audience did not behave well. Uh, you know, they were they were laughing at the wrong places and, and so on and so forth. And that uh, uh, you know, the, the editor turned around to say something to Whale, uh, and Whale was gone. <laughs> he had fled the theater. He couldn't take it. Uh, <laughs> they were all everybody was laughing at the movie. Uh, he somehow got you know gotten into his head that this was a good straight melodrama and it was it was fine, but. But the audience felt differently, and we all fled. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, after so many years in the theater, I'm sure he realized it's like, okay, it's time for me to head out. This, this is unsavable. Yeah. <laughs> One more thing on Green Hell. You, uh, when you watch most of the whales' movies, you get the feeling there's a master in charge. Especially, you know, the first the first ones are kind of crude, but I'd say Frankenstein from on. on you get a feeling this is a, you know, sometimes director, it's obvious there's no one in charge. The director has lost control. And there's a, you always had that feel with Whale, except in Green Hell, you feel it just got out of hand and he couldn't pull it back in. <laughs> Whether he didn't care or didn't know, I don't know. But, it, you know, it's not a typical James Whale film, thank God. <laughs> in your honor, I will give it a rewatch. I, All right. <laughs> when I was a kid, I saw it, wasn't crazy about it. I will rewatch it in your honor, Frank. <laughs> Rewatch it. You'll remake it. <laughs> now we give. Now we're giving Josh film ideas what to do. So it's going to be great. <laughs> now, just before we go into our second topic, what was his impact on films in the '30s? You know, at the times they were coming out. Do you think that other filmmakers were watching what he was doing and changing on the fly in that decade? Hmm. I, I don't think so. Uh, the film is, is always on the border of chaos. Joshua can speak to that better than I, but it's, it's hard to keep it under the control. I don't, I, you know, did other filmmakers take inspiration from him? Not, not on the fly. Maybe later on, because they saw what was working. I mean, we haven't talked about how successful his films were. Uh, a lot of them broke house records where they played Frankenstein, Invisible Man, and, uh, and the Bride of Frankenstein were all record breakers. So I imagine they inspired some people in some way, but I'd, I'd have trouble being specific on that, actually pointing to a movie and say there's a whale influence. Greg can probably, uh, not putting Greg on the spot, but he can probably point to an example, but I can't. Well, I think it would have been, I think it was hard for, he was so unique, you know, as a talent. I think it'd be hard for people to imitate him. You know, I mean, there was so many crazy, unique things came out of his, uh, imagination as a filmmaker i think if even if they had had wanted to say well we'll make a film the way whale makes it they couldn't have they couldn't have done it you know uh they could have they could have tried but um you know the, the, some of the things that we see him doing in his movies you know they just they, they wouldn't have had the same 
the same background in British theater and the same the, the, the same in personality and and so much of, of things that, that Whale had that, that affected his work. Uh, you can, I mean, if we want to bring in, I don't know how much we want to do this, this is like the, the, the following sequels after Whale left the, the Frankenstein series and then trying to do, I mean, you, you watch them and they're fun and they're great and I love them, but you can tell that James Whale is not at, at the helm. I mean, that's like House of Dracula and, and uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, which I, I love them equally, but you can just definitely see that the craftsmanship isn't present. And I, I guess that's them trying to keep in that whale mold and tell the same type of spooky castle story. And it's just, it's vastly different. Um, if that answers your question, Steve. Um, well, I'm just trying to get an idea. And it actually jarred back another thing I, went, I noticed in watching his films. And, and Josh, when I talked about this, when we did the invisible man, whales always seem to somehow, and most of his, especially his great films, his best films, been paired with a great cinematographer because some of the cinematography that he does is, is breathtaking still to this day. I know in showboat when they're doing old man river, that whole sequence in cinema is just, is just breathtaking. And I didn't know if you guys want to talk about like any particular sequence from his film with the cinematography and how much credit, I mean, it's hard to say how much credit is him and how much is the cinematographer. I know. I think, I think it's sometimes when you get that, symbiotic relationship and he just gets paired with somebody that's able to take his vision and put it in there. And he's been luckily blessed with various ones at times. Cause it's not always the same cinematographer, but you guys want to talk a little bit about the cinematography and I'll start with Josh. Uh, well, I, like I said, the, 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 his Bride of Frankenstein finale is just done the shots, the, the overhead shots, the different angles and, and that, but uh, I also bring in, um, I mean, just the, 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 I think we even talked about it during Invisible Man, Claude Rain's big explosive moment in Invisible Man where he's talking about how the moon is frightened of him and the camera's below him. It's, it's so simple cinematography, but they're, they're striking images that, that are, are forever in, you, I mean, again, talking about the mad scientist laboratory, you think anyone modern, talk to someone modern about, <laughs> talk to someone modern, um, what's the Frankenstein monster look like? And they, they automatically like the whale, the Carlisle Frankenstein is the iconic thing. And the same thing with the invisible man. I think it's just, that's the iconic look. And those images are, are dynamite. Um, I mean, what else, what, what else we got? Invisible man, bride of Frankenstein on, on screen for what? Two seconds. <laughs> and then she's iconic with that. I will never forget the scream of the bride when she first sees the monster. And that is, that is, I won't say it's a chilling moment, but it is a riveting moment when she, when she does that. Exactly. And it's so ironic. You know, she has her nerve, you know, this is not right. You know, it's, <laughs> she, she does have her nerve, but I will say she may realize that she's looking at her brother. <laughs> and the thought of incest is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, good point. Yeah, but yeah, no, no, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it is. It's, it's, there's, he worked, you know, it's interesting to look at his different films and he would work with the same cinematographers for several films at a time and then switch for whatever reason. They would leave the studio and somebody else would come in and he'd work with them and uh, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, so it, you know, 
took advantage of the incredible work crew that he had as a studio uh, director and, uh, you know, was able to, to uh, get through to them what he wanted. And, and um, you know, he had it together. He really did. Yeah, he, he was a studio director, but under Carl Emily Jr., who I suspect had a crush on Whale, he had pretty much free way. He was in, he was to call the shots, which may, may account because it'd be a picture more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, he, he really, he had incredible freedom, which is why when he left Universal, he was like, you know, he was, he was dead in the water. He, he just couldn't get that same kind of cooperation at another studio that he would get at Universal. So he was kind of, you know, he was spoiled, you know, by the time he left uh, as far as what he would want. Was there, was there a specific reason why he, he left Universal or is it just? Well, he had, he had problems with, uh, with the road back, um, mm-hmm. you know, the front office, uh, and, and, uh, and the Lemleys were gone, you know, that, well, so, there you go. so that was the major thing. So, you know, he just wasn't used to getting, you know, getting this prize of treatment that he was used to getting. And he thought, well, I can get it someplace else. And he didn't get, he didn't, you know, it was, it was, he almost was immediately in, out of, you know, in trouble as far as, as far as his career going once he left Universal. All right. Excellent. And we're going to move into the second topic. Um, what is Wales legacy in cinema? You know, from that, for after he retired and so on, you know, how has he impacted movie making and things like that for since then? And we'll start with um, Greg. Who? Greg. Greg Mank. Oh, Greg. Okay. Yeah, here we go. Uh, <laughs> uh, as far as, well, you know, when, when I sort, sort of the first part, I said that, you know, he had sympathetic people as monsters in, um, you know, originally. And then it changed uh, in, the, in the part we're talking about now in the sense that he had monsters as sort of as sympathetic people, all right? Uh, you know, the people like Stan Hope and Journey's End uh, and Myra, you know, saw themselves as monsters. The monsters in Frankenstein and, and uh, Invisible Man and Bride of Frankenstein rather saw themselves as people. Not, not in the sense that they weren't aware of the difference between the fact that they were different, you know, the, the idea that they were different, that they were not people and that this was a large part of their problem, but they wanted to be people, you know, they wanted to be accepted by people. They wanted to have the whole, you know, they wanted to have the whole human uh, experience uh, in their lives. And so that was a big deal. I think in, in making course, making his films work was the fact that, you know, people would go to uh, see Bride of Frankenstein and the most human character in the movie would be Carlos monster. As far as his expressions that, that, that he would, uh, that he would give. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein, not, I mean, as, as far as, you know, Elsa's Bride of Frankenstein, I wouldn't say that she's particularly, a, it was a, was a particularly sympathetic, uh, monster, but you know, she was, uh, um, you know, she was attractive and, you know, she was kind of hot in her own way. And so she had her own thing going. Okay. Um, but, um, uh, the, uh, you know, the fact that he was able to really pull this off, he was able to get, you know, audiences to, 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 to relate to a monster who was, you know, put together from rifle graves and that he was able to, to uh, uh, put together, you know, have an invisible man who had this, who wanted to take over the world and that you still, you felt sympathy and sorrow for him. And all this was the magic trick that Whale pulled off in his movies was this, this uh, idea of being able to do that. And so it was sort of a flip side of how he started, you know, in the flip beginning, take people who see themselves as monsters, then evolved into this thing where monsters who saw themselves as at least wanting to be people. All right. That was awesome. Well, <laughs> well said. And Josh, we'll, we'll go to you, Josh. Um, what, what was his legacy in cinema? Oh, um, 
I mean, it's, it's, oh. me personally, legacy, legacy in cinema. I mean, Young Frankenstein has to be in my top ten <laughs> favorite movies of all time. I mean, just the, I mean, his fingerprints are all over. I mean, it's just a beautiful homage to his stuff. So I have to thank James Whale for doing the films to inspire Mel Brooks to make Young Frankenstein. So there's that. But um, it's it's immeasurable. I mean, I, I like I said earlier, and I kind of bleeds in, into this the, the iconic imagery of his films: the Mad Scientist Lab, the Invisible Man wrapped up in bandages. It's it's so baked into modern culture, modern you know geek culture. It's like oh, you like Dracula? I mean, you say Dracula, instantly everyone thinks. I know it's not James Welcome, but like that that the Universal films that that Whale had a big hand in, and and just the, the, uh, tied in back to the the editing. I don't think. Okay, here's a good example: the the nineteen. 19- 43 Phantom of the Opera with Claude Rains. As much as I love that film, uh, people aren't talking about that as much as, you know, James Wells' Frankenstein or, or Bride of Frankenstein. And I think it, it goes back to that, that dynamite camera movement that he's constantly doing and the ruthless, I'll use ruthless, ruthless editing that's just keeping your attention and your, your pulled here. The Phantom of the Opera 1943 just kind of goes along like, like a, like a aimless, I don't even know it's something that's aimless uh, just just stumbles about as much as I, I love the 1943 Phantom of the Opera, but compare it to the electricity and the the energy of of Wales, you know, electric films. It, it's night and day, and uh, the fact that they they were edited so ruthlessly and have that that spark, I think, really keeps them alive in comparison to maybe you know the. Todd Browning's Dracula or, or the 43 Phantom of the Opera, which I get, I mean, they love them both, but I think that energy keeps his, his stuff alive in, in the modern psyche. Okay. And of course, Frank, you get to anchor us. <laughs> okay. Um, I can't, I can't really add to what Greg and, and Joshua said, but let me, let me take a different tact. The uh, old dark house, which I don't on this 1932 was made maybe immediately after Frankenstein or shortly after Frankenstein, was thought lost for many years. Late 1960s, a print was discovered, and it played at in New York City at the Kennedy Center Theater, which was a theater. And it was announced it would play. And it was on a, I was in college across the river in Hoboken, and it was on a weeknight. I ran over there, and I couldn't believe the mob. And they had a line for t- had a line for tickets. People were breaking into the line. <laughs> it was it was not a riot, but it was just overwhelming. And they played it again on a Wednesday. We had a we had a quiz every Wednesday in physics. But I went to my teacher. I lied through my teeth about about being sick or whatever it was. <laughs> then I went over there, and there was still a mob. <laughs> I got in, and it was and everybody loved the movie. It was funny. You know, the the jokes were. You know, it's a little, it's a little hard to keep all these. A lot, a lot, for those who haven't seen, it, there's a lot of characters to keep track of in there. And uh, Charles Lawton's Yorkshire accent is—you got to see it to hear it to believe it. Very end of the movie, Boris Karloff is very much a brute. He's a drunken brute. And at the end, a, a character dies, and Karloff goes up to him, takes his head, and coddles it. That he's, you know, there's. With there that was never a little 
before. Maybe it was his illegitimate son. I don't know. And he carries it up the stairs. And that is a very whale touch. And I, just to put what Greg said in slightly different words, in great horror movies, often the most human character in the movie is the monster. <laughs> and, uh, and in that one fleeting moment, Karloff became, I mean, Karloff's character, this brute, this drunk, uh, became the most human person there. And that was really touching. Another happened in New York. The Invisible Man never got the playtime of some of the other horror movies. You know, Frankenstein, Dracula, they're kind of the, the marquee value. And it was playing at a revival theater in in, uh, in New York. And and as I don't like going to revivals because there's always a group of people there just come to laugh at an old movie. And it kind of it can, it can ruin it for everybody else. And it started, and it was it was people being ir- irreverent, which I didn't appreciate. And then uh, once rains got started, uh, it all quieted down. And then there was a scene where the Invisible Man has escaped from the country in that he is at and comes back to get his notebooks. And he takes this big, heavy bench and beats the head in on a policeman. And there was a gasp that, uh, you know, I imagine a lot of people there hadn't seen pre-code, weren't used to that kind of level of violence. But that one act to shut the audience up. And after that, it became the way it meant to be watched. So is that Whale's legacy? I, I think, yeah, in a sense, yes. One is that the, the, the residual desire to see a lost whale film was, was enormous. And, and then a film that people went in maybe not appreciating captivated them in no time, 40, well, 40 50 years after they release. So that's not really his legacy, but I'll always remember those two minutes, those two, 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 the first two whale films I saw on the big screen, by the way. I've since seen quite a few on the big screen, but those are the first two I saw on the big screen. And that was, those are moments I remember. Awesome. Now, any, any filmmakers that are out there in the last few decades that you think are most reminiscent of Wales style, you know, like uh, with pacing, editing, or just with using the how he uses characters? Is there anybody you'd think that would be, I'm not saying exactly like him, but, but something similar to that style that he brought? You mean they stopped making movies? They kept making movies after 1950. I, I, I have to look that up. Um, you have to lead with the filmmaker on that because I can't. I haven't any answers to that. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're so. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you, Frank. It's like, oh, they're they're still making movies that people can go watch. Uh, I, I hate to you know destroy all modern filmmaking, um, but I, I, I there's really only one James Well, and we, we've come so far with modern filmmaking and modern storytelling that, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I can't think of anyone. I mean, to, to even compare James Whale to modern, I mean, the only one Greg I can think any... of, the only one I can think of, I'll throw out a name is Del Toro is the only one I can think of right off the top. That's like in the last couple of decades, that's similar. I'm not saying exactly, but, but the similar where, especially with the monsters portrayed more human, and not as the evil thing, but just because they look that way. And I'm not sure how you got, I'm how familiar the three of you are with Del Toro's work to talk about that. <laughs> you got the wrong group here. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was worth a try. <laughs> <laughs> 
don't know about editing that part out. That question won't make there it to the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> if you would ask, if you ask us that ahead of time, I'm sure we could have looked something up and had a, had some decent. But I can't do that off the top of my head. Well, I think with his Wales legacy in cinema, I was looking in for more like after he retired, like from the 50s all the way up to current times. And I think the question was interpreted differently by you guys still looking at how his work held up, where I was thinking about that and also how it impacted other filmmakers post post him. I think that's that was the difference. But, uh, well, let me just say, I mean, Whale at his best was making very personal films on odd topics, but very personal films. And that's hard to, that's hard to translate to another filmmaker. So, but I don't, I don't have any, I don't have a great answer to your question. Yeah, I, know, I know many, many years ago talking to, uh, when, when, I, when I interviewed Elsa Lanchester about Bride of Frankenstein. And, and one of the first things she said is she said, boy, horror films certainly needed, need a man like James Whale today. Uh, but well, I mean, we're, at that point though, we're talking, <laughs> we're talking 40 years ago, uh, when <laughs> Mark, so, so, you know, 40 years ago is a long time, but, uh, you know, as far back as then she was saying that, you know, they, 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 they the, the genre needed, uh, somebody with that kind of style and that kind of daring and that kind of audacity and that kind of good taste and all, all those, all those kind of things that she was talking about back at that point. But, um, yeah. Just to throw in something, Rosemary's Baby, 1968, Raymond Polanski. Is that a James Whale film? No, but I, I would I would say it's a it's a got a personal touch. There is humor in it. It's masterful, and it it, it touches all the bases of what I think a great horror movie is. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So was that a, was he influenced by Whale? I have no idea. Is there would Whale have done a good job of that movie? I think he would have done a, as good a job as Polanski, but it would be a different movie. Yeah. Yeah, he would have had fun with that. That would have been, yeah, that's a very good point. But that's not a new movie. That's 50, almost 50 years old. <laughs> it, works. Yeah. it works. It works. It works. It's funny. I went to see Rosemary's Baby the day I got my driver's license. It gives you how long, how, how old that movie is. So. <laughs> and, Josh was, and Josh wasn't even around. He wasn't even. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Young whippersnapper of the group. Um, how has Wales lit work impacted you guys? Like personally, how has it impacted you watching his films, his work? And we'll start with um, let's say I think we, I think we've gone all the way around. We'll go about start with Frank again. I think we, I think we've gone all the way around everybody. As a as a Bela Lugosi fan, I was always jealous when I saw a Wales film. And I wished he had better than that. He was up for Dr. Praetorius, but I really don't see him being as good as Dr. Praetorius as, as Ernest Betziger was. And maybe it's, it's, uh, maybe they were just incompatible. Uh, I mean, he almost became Frankenstein, but he didn't. And I guess that's, that's good. He didn't because he could not have done as good a job as Carlo. Uh, it set the bar. I mean, I mean, these were good movies. I mean, you didn't have to, these were not relative classics. Like a lot of the horror, a lot of the horror classics, the classics in the broader schemes they're not really classic films but i consider frankenstein bride of frankenstein and invisible man classics in the truest sense of the word the deepest sense of the word how he impacted me he set the bar it's as simple as that i mean uh, there are movies i hold in his hard regard I'm, I'm a big fan of island of lost souls especially greg's commentary on the dvd thank you a fan of uh, 
I'm a big fan of King Kong, and I and but if you list the top ten horror films of the 1930s, James Whale is going to be in there three times. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, as a Bela Lugosi fan, I wish she had had a director as competent as a, a genius as gifted as James Whale, and quite frankly, he never did. I thought he carried Cat Call uh, Todd Browning, and rather than vice versa. All right, and um, that sounds good. And, and Greg, we'll go to you. Oh, gee, uh, James Whale has inspired so many real life adventures for me. Um, uh, particularly interviews, um, I've been very, very lucky to have talked to, to a lot of people who he worked with. Uh, David Manners, who was in Journey's End. Uh, uh, you know, May Clark from Frankenstein, Marilyn Harris from Frankenstein. Also, Lanchester, Valerie Hobson, I could go on and on. I even, I even, even Douglas Fairbanks Jr. from Green Hell. I, you know, I got the, so I've got some Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Green Hell stories. Um, but um, it, it, it's been wonderful doing that kind of research. And a funny thing, the, the, actually, the last time we were in Hollywood, Barbara and I were in Hollywood, and this was the kind of thing that only a you know, crazy fan would find exciting. And that was that we went to the house where we all lived in 1931 when he was directing Frankenstein. All right. That house is way up in the Hollywood Hills. It looks like a villa. I mean, it looks like, it, it looks like the, the place you see in the opening of Bride of Frankenstein. It's got a great big tower in the middle. Uh, it's, it's, it's Gothic and Baroque and beautiful. And um, it, it's about as high as you can get. In fact, you stand up there and look off to the sides. You see the tops of the highest hills. All right, in, in the area, up in that place. And the fellow who owns the house now, uh, who rents it out for fashion shoots and, and, and weddings and all this kind of thing because it's such a beautiful house, um, he, he, was, he was so nice and he was so, you know, pleased to see that I was so, you know, gaga over being there and everything. She let, he let me basically roam the house, <laughs> roam the pool area. Uh, he uh, uh, I said, can I go up in the tower? Sure, I'll take you up in the tower. I went on the tower, you know, it was kind of thing. And so I kept, of course, I was thinking the whole time, gee, you know, James, we all got up this morning in this house all those years ago and left and went down to direct Frankenstein. And late at night, he'd come back here and, you know, come up in the hills and go back to this house. And, and you know, I took like a million pictures and, you know, it was it was just kind of, <laughs> other people out there, we'd be able to go, you know, we go to Disneyland or, you know, something of that nature. And, you know, my, uh, poor Barbara and I, she and I are, you know, at James Whale's house from 1931. And, and uh, the guy's having a hard time getting rid of me to, to <laughs> leave the premises. He was, he was a very, very nice man. And like I say, once he realized, you know, how, what, what a big deal this was for me, he just said, go ahead, you know, run, run wild through the place and enjoy yourself. So, so it's been a lot of uh, excitement, a lot of fun, uh, researching Whale. And, um, and you're know, talking to the people who knew him and seeing his, his uh, homes and haunts and that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's been it's been real cool, very cool. Awesome. And Josh, well, I mean, I always try to find an excuse to put in. I think I told you about this, Steve. The James Whale cut or the James Whale cut in in my films, and it's it's those. I mean, those who aren't familiar with it, listening, uh, it's. Karloff first comes in, he turns around, and we get one cut, cut closer, cut closer. And I always make a big deal of it on, all right, we're doing the James Whale cut, we're doing the James Whale cut. So that's my my little 
tip of the hat to him. I always try and try and find it. And I don't always get a chance to, but when I do, I'm like, all right, we're doing James Whale cut. And like, well, why don't you just zoom in? I was like, you don't understand what we're doing here. So yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to like boil down all of his legacy on me just to that, but, but I mean, he's had a huge influence on me and, and I always, like I said, try and little tip of the hat to him. Um, Awesome. And uh, I think anything else you guys want to talk about with whale that we left out that you want to bring up for discussion? I think we, uh, okay. I think we covered it. I think we did. Yeah. Only thing I want to make sure we cover is you guys were very underplaying the books that you both wrote. Um, Mr. Mank, we'll start with you. Uh, what, give us some titles of the books and where people can find your work. I'm not sure which one to start with. I've, I've done I've done a bunch of done a bunch of books, and um, uh, the um, there's the one the Big Legosi and Boris Karloff and expanded story of awning collaboration, which was a few years ago. Uh, the one coming out, Angels and Ministers of Grace Defend Us, which um, Frank, God bless him, proofread for me uh, and made a lot of excellent suggestions and 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 did a, a hell of a lot to help keep my sanity during that procedure. Um, uh, is going to be is hopefully coming out soon they're having a lot of pro- lot of publishing shenanigans going on right now with uh, you know with the various problems around the country uh we're getting that together um i have a novel that will be coming out now we were hoping by christmas now it's the beginning of the year uh <laughs> which is called frankenstein's witch uh saint lizzie pray for us which has a lot about james whale in it so um and all the other frankenstein gangs so that's coming out. So uh, there, there's there's three of them right there. Excellent. And where can people find these? Are there going to be are there going to be anywhere books or can be found like Amazon or Book Barnes and Noble? The place to go is I think to my probably my website and www.gregorymank.com. Uh, yeah. So you can just go there and and uh, you know look me up there and and I can tell you I can tell you where to go to find all this stuff. <laughs> excellent, excellent, Frank. What's, what are some of your books hey. that you want to plug, and where can people get them? Where can people get them? Well, they're on Amazon. They're on eBay. I imagine Greg's are, too. And they're on my website, cultmoviespress.com. And you can also buy them through Creepy Classics. And I have six books, three nonfiction. Uh, Vampire of London, Bela Lugosi in Britain, about the eight months he spent in Britain in uh, 1951. And the neat thing about that is when we started, my co-author and I, Andy Brooks, started researching. We were looking for a magazine article. We just found tons of information and found people that had never spoken about it before. And what began as a magazine article became a a book on Bela Lugosi's Last Hurrah. There's a book called A Quaint and Curious Volume of Forgotten Law, The Mythology and History of Classic Horror Films which is a collect, I realized you could write a lousy book, you live forever. You write a great magazine article, you live for an issue. So I <laughs> took all my magazine articles that I had written up till then, expanded them, added to them, and, and put them in a book. That's a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. Uh, my third book is a memoir. I saw what I saw when I saw it, which is a recurring line from Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is unashamedly my favorite movie of all time. I don't do greatest movies anymore, but I do favorites. And uh, that is about grow. And the subtitle is "Growing Up in the 19s." I forget this stuff. Growing up in the 1960s with television reruns and old movies, which is basically a summation of my life. But we get into a lot of things from the 1950s there. Then I, uh, unknowingly, I had 
written one book, which is a history, one book, which is a commentary, and one book, which is uh, what was left. So uh, I to the novel business, took all the Wolfman movies I could find, tied them together, made them a cohesive whole in a novel called uh, Werewolf Remembers, The Testament of Lawrence Stewart Talbert. Lawrence Talbot is the Wolfman in the movies. Second book was uh, Carl Denham's Giant Monsters. And on a small island, I find, when I, I actually lived in Indonesia once, and my wife and I used to go to it, actually went to a small island. In my book, we find living there a very old man who wants to tell his story, and that's Carl Denham hiding out from U.S. jurisdiction for reasons known by anyone who has seen Son of Kong. And my third book, which just, my third novel, sixth book, which just came out uh, last June, is The Passion of the Mummy where a young, it begins with a, a young boy going to on a class trip to the Scripps Museum in Manhattan where he sings The Mummy of Paris, and somehow the two start communing. And the book follows him till he becomes a man, and his communion with Karis is very attractive to the cult of Karnak, which is trying to get one, one secret out of Karis. Hard to get because Karis has no tongue. So they hope, <laughs> they hope to get it through the boy. Working on a seven, a fourth novel, a seventh book, Patron Saints of the Living Dead, which does does two or four zombie movies, but I did two or four werewolf movies, giant monster movies, and mummy movies. And I'm always writing for uh, Monster Bash magazine and Scary Monsters magazine, so you can see my stuff there. Excellent, excellent. And Josh, what you you, you can you, just you, follow me. You got you got a ton of work. I mean, you got a ton of work. What what are some of the places some of the places they can go to find your things, and what are some of the movies you want to talk about? I mean, my main page is just Joshua Kennedy, Man of the Arts, on Facebook, or just add me on Facebook, and I'm constantly posting my movies on there right now. Working on Mantipus, which is my tribute to the Michael Guff uh, films of the '60s, half man, half octopus, and I'm doing a terrible Michael Guff impression throughout the entire film. So. If you're into Michael Guff, that's the movie for you. <laughs> All right, and um, gentlemen, I want to. Thank Josh was being too. Josh is being too modest. He's done a lot of independent movies, and uh, they're neat. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. <laughs> Where I come from, that's quite a compliment. <laughs> and you know it is. Thank you. Thank they're you. neat movies to watch. I. Uh, Josh is just south of me. I'm in Houston, but I'm not from here. I'm from the Northeast. I mean, you say something is neat up there, you mean it, man. <laughs> Thank you. And for those that want to learn more about Josh, we have an interview with him earlier on in our episodes, you know, way back in the beginning. And Josh was in many, many different episodes with us talking about movies. And also, just before this episode came out, a few episodes back will be the second interview with Josh where he talks about a lot of these movies that are coming up. That's why he's being so modest a little bit, Frank is because he, we, we just discussed this with him in detail and in the episodes and. Yeah. But Joe DiMaggio once said, there's always somebody watching who's never seen me play before. You gotta, you gotta spill it all every chance you get. <laughs> that is true. Have we, have we lost Greg or I've lost yeah. Greg. My, my, yeah, my picture disappeared up there, but I'm oh, I'm still okay. He's, he's still with okay. us. Okay. Um, just before we say our pro, before uh, we say our proper goodbyes, I just want to say goodbye to everybody. Thank you for joining us for the epi- You know, joining me for the episode and talking about this roundtable was very fun. Listening to you guys discuss James Whale and the knowledge that you brought with him. So thank you for helping me out. Yeah, yeah it's a pleasure to be with all four of you today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you.
All right, listeners, um, thank you for joining us with this deep dive into James Whale. We've now reached the total end of our James Whale journey. Um, as always, the next episode will be a movie decided by a roll of a die or another interview. And as always, have fun, take time, and enjoy something that you like and love. Watch a James Whale movie or two. I'm not sure about Green Hell, though, but give it a watch. Frank gives it recommend. I again want to thank Frank, Greg, and Josh for joining me with the James Whale Roundtable. But good news, this is not the final episode of the James Whale Retrospective series. Um, we did two more movies. The next one's going to be coming out. The next movie's going to be coming out next episode, and that is The Road Back with Troy Howarth. And then in a few weeks after that will be Wives Under Suspicion with Rod Barnett. So we have two more sections of the James Earl Retrospective series. And you never know, down the road we might add another movie or two as they become more readily available. Otherwise, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. Feel free to leave us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook page. Look forward to hearing from you. And next week, or not next week, next episode will be The Road Back. Hope everybody has a good day. Bye.